Assyrians organizing to appeal, demand, rights and power from somebody else given to us is a ruse. It's a disease and it's been holding us back and it's been destructive. Hi friends, Adessa here. Welcome to episode 11 on the Assyrian Podcast. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Yuash. Michael is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Toronto. He is a part of the Assyrian Global Self-Governance and is the secretary for the Nineveh Plain Defense Fund. He is a husband and a father to not one, not two, not three, not four, but five really cute kids. And in addition to his initiatives and academics, we'll get to hear from him on what it's been like raising a bicultural family. You know, one of the many reasons why I enjoy doing this podcast is because we get to dive a little bit deeper with people and get to know them on a personal level. Like I only knew of Michael from an academic and Assyrian standpoint because I've attended his lectures at the Assyrian conventions, and I'm sure for many of you the same. So it's cool that we get to learn more about the people we interview and ask questions that given any other setting might not really make sense. So I really enjoyed our talk and I think you will too. Now before we get into the interview, thank you, thank you, thank you again for the nominations that have been coming in. We really do appreciate it. In order to streamline the process, we've added a nomination form on our website that you can find at assyrianpodcast.com and encourage people to continue nominating others but using that form specifically. That'll help us out a lot. And as always, the best way others can hear about the podcast is through word of mouth and recommendations. So if you find value in this Syrian podcast, make sure that you listen, share out, rate, and review us on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast because it really does help. Now, without further ado, Mr. Michael Yuash. As a little kid, I used to sit down and watch old documentaries on World War One, World War Two, international developments. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I can't explain why, but I always have. And after that, after that kind of innate sense, I guess there was an engagement with politics. So in undergrad, when I was at uh, the University of Toronto, I forget now if I was 20 or 21, I went to volunteer for uh, my local member of parliament. And at that time, it was not partisan for me. It was just to go and volunteer in a member of parliament's office. And was your undergrad degree in, in politics? Yeah, okay. yeah. So it, it was a combined, it's called a combined specialist undergrad degree. You had to apply into the program to get into it. And it was all very political and um, at, at a high level. And and so because of that, it prompted me to reach out to my local MP and start volunteering. And within two, three months of volunteering at the office, she actually said, I want you to work for me. And, and that was it. I, I started a job. I was a contract researcher in my undergrad for a member of parliament. And this member of parliament specifically was on the Foreign Affairs Committee. She, uh, she was the vice chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee at the time. And she was the chair of the subcommittee on international development and human rights. And, uh, and that had a huge impact on me. And the other intersection with that is is my university studies. So... It was in the political sciences, and it was very international relations and history-oriented. And that's where it all kind of came together. The, the things I was reading clicked with who I was as an Assyrian, Assyrian history, my reading of everything. 
And so many things came together and showed me that, you know, this is what really fuels my passion. And, and it was eye-opening as well. You know, the, the world of politics became a world of a lot of possibility for me. So, I mean, one, one of the things that was a huge impact on me is my first boss was a woman at a time when the Liberal Party of Canada, I mean, I'm older in my years now. So at this time, the Liberal Party of Canada was actually trying to, it's called parachuting. They were trying to parachute women candidates into ridings to boost the number of women in Parliament, in the House mm -hmm. of Commons. I had this woman for a boss that was a strong political leader. She was a strong constituency leader. And she showed me how much is possible. And, and so all of that became something amazing for me, something that I could, that could fuel my fire, yeah. you know, that, that could push me even more to see possibility where possibility to others doesn't exist. So that was your leg into politics. It was uh, a trial by fire that I welcomed that was highly experiential, for lack of a better term. So it wasn't a benign sit back, read the papers. You know, I was thrust into issues uh, all the time. And, and it was amazing. It was amazing. What happened after that? I left. She was very upset with me um, <laughs> She because I, I got a job offer to go to South Africa when I was 24 and 1999, I left the continent. I went to another another place to work in legislatures, legislature development, legislature design. So it was again carrying on the same the same thing, but at a, at a completely different level. Post colonial, post liberation struggle of a people who were oppressed, and there I was on contract with them directly. I was working as a contractor with them directly, designing their post-apartheid new democracy parliamentary systems. That was a huge leap. So from going from Canada, <laughs> leaving that behind and deciding to go to South Africa, what drew you to that? I did mention that my university studies was an intersection of my Assyrianism and my interest in politics. And realization I had through world history, international relations, contemporary politics, is that the Assyrian struggle is a post-colonial, neo-imperial struggle for liberation and freedom. And in that, I've always valued the principle of solidarity. We have to be in solidarity with people who share the same struggle. Mm -hmm. And so it was no decision at all. Mm -hmm. And I got a call and they, somebody asked, would you go to Johannesburg? When? In two weeks. And I said, <laughs> yes. And I ended up living there for five years. And I have to say that there was a, I'm not counting a window in which I came back to Canada. So mm -hmm. I lived in South Africa for five years, but in the middle of that, there was a window. Mm -hmm. I came back to do my master's mm -hmm. at the University of Toronto. And while I was doing my master's... And what was your master's on? Uh, my master's is in public policy. While I was doing my master's, uh, God rest his soul, Alfono Ninos Ajo and Afram Kumi facilitated a meeting in New York City of some Assyrian activists with uh, Firas Jetu present, Dr. John Michael present, among others. And at that time, obviously it's 2002, 2003, we know what's going on in Iraq. And at that time I was asked, what are you prepared to do for the cause? What are you prepared to do in terms of activism? Possibly a voice in Washington, DC. And I remember telling them and specifically Melfono Ninos Ajo, I said, you know, if you say jump, I'll only ask how high. Mm. And then they didn't ask me to jump. Nobody asked me to jump. So I went back to South Africa to carry on with my contract there okay. um, after finishing my master's. But in 2004, 
Afram Kumi. Actually, and who is Afram Kumi? For those that may not know, Afram Kumi is an Assyrian who lives in New Jersey, has various businesses, a wonderful family, a very welcoming family, very umtanaya. He facilitated this meeting, and so Afram Kumi in 2004, I want to say, made a trip all the way to South Africa. Oh wow! <laughs> and, <laughs> to see and, you? Well. He, he had business in South Africa. It was a business trip, but I was, I was clearly part of the business because he came there and said, we need you to jump. Mm. And I went to the government that I was working. I went to the actually the African National Congress. I was working for them, but through the legislature. And I said, I have to go. I mean, I had three. I had a year and a half left on my contract. They said, what's happening? I said, my people are in this situation and they immediately forgave the 18 months on my contract despite how important it was to them and said go and we wish you the best in your struggle and i and i you know not to romanticize it but that's solidarity yeah you know they could have held me to a contract but they didn't totally. <laughs> and and then that's how i ended up uh, out of south africa and back back in the, at least north america so afram asked you to jump. afram asked on behalf of a, a wider group yeah yeah, that included Firas Jetu, Dr. John Michael, Milfono Ninos Aho, and others. So um, what happened after that? You left South Africa to then do... That's when we set up the Iraq Sustainable Democracy Project through the then Assyrian Academic Society, which was then at that time an affiliate of the Assyrian American National Federation. The Iraq Sustainable Democracy Project was not the Assyrian nation's first representation in Washington DC because to my knowledge and I I'm sure online on social media I'll get corrected if I'm wrong which would be great but to my knowledge the first concerted effort in Washington DC was by also Anamanikhle Rabbi Ivankovic to set up a presence a formal official presence in Washington DC like a constant presence in Washington DC but it was a massive endeavor by the Assyrian Academic Society and the people who supported it and Assyrian Americans to set up a presence. I was the project director. So I was full-time in Washington, D.C. starting in 2005. And what was the mission? It was an effort to have the appeals and the policies and the agendas of Assyrians in Iraq reach the right people in Washington, D.C. So I have to scroll back for a second, but Firaz Jetu, and I'm forever indebted to him for this, in 2004, while I was still in South Africa, arranged for me to get to Assyria, Iraq, for my first time ever. And during that time, kind of the seeds were set for what's going on, what's happening, and, and the struggles that our people were having getting their policy agenda heard. And so for us, the response was, well, there's a voice in Iraq, and now we need a voice in Washington. And, and hopefully that'll elevate the volume, boost it. And, and from a professional perspective, I am a policy expert. I am a policy professional. And I was there to advocate, not lobby, but advocate. And, you know, there were some historical steps made during that time. How long were you in D.C. for? Five years full time in Washington, D.C., and then it was another three years that I was effectively continuing to do the policy work and making trips to Washington, D.C. and working on legislation and agendas in terms of uh, advocacy and education and the lobbying arm 
to the Iraq Sustainable Democracy Project was the Assyrian American National Coalition. Martin Umaran, Walita Cannon, Christine Faulkner, Elmer Abo, Dr. Elmer Abo, and I'm, I'm forgetting people, but it was an amazing, it was an amazing uh, group. And so, you know, we, we worked on legislation even when I wasn't in Washington, D.C. full-time. For example, that's the first time, legis- first time that legislation got passed for Article 125 pursuant to an Inuit Plains province. That's huge. Yeah, so the first legislation, and by legislation I don't mean a resolution, a sense of Congress. I mean appropriations legislation, operational language, that it was through the Senate and it made it into the appropriations report language. It was the 2012 financial years appropriation. It was achieved in 2011. It was the first ever real appropriations language that directive to Article 125, which is an Inuit Plains province, policing, policing in the Inuit Plains, and support for independent civil society organizations in terms of humanitarian relief. So what's the, now what is the status? On my end, uh, the Iraq Sustainable Democracy Project ended late 2011, early 2012. Here's how it happened. So we all know about the horrible tragedy, the Sayyidat al-Najat, the church, the All Saints Day Massacre in Baghdad at, at the All Saints Day Mass. And immediately after that massacre, I, I was actually in my, in, at the university when I got a message to get on a call with some members of Congress and the State Department. I actually had to ask, I was so embarrassed, I actually had to ask my PhD supervisor if I could use his office for a phone call mm. with uh, the State Department and Congress. And at that time, I was asked, you know, what are the urgent needs? There are the obvious security humanitarian response needs that I discussed. But the other thing that I did is I planted the proposal for an audit of all the previous legislation we passed. So now you have to realize, I mean, I mentioned the appropriations legislation. Between 2008 and 2011, we had appropriated 42 mil- not less than $42 million to the Ninway Plains. Like legislation that we worked on, that our people, Assyrian Americans, worked on secured $42 million of aid to the Ninway Plains over those years. We had legislation on policing. We had legislation on a province or Article 125, operationalizing Article 125 in the Iraqi constitution. So I proposed an audit. Let's let's see what all this has done. We, over the course of late 2010 and then all of 2011, the Government Accountability Office which is the auditors of the United States Congress, and they audit whatever Congress asked them to audit. We provided them all the evidence they needed, exactly how we were being oppressed. So for example, the $42 million, how none of it went directly through our independent civil society organizations. The maj- almost all of the money went through either American NGOs that had no concern for us, or it went through the people who oppress us, the Kurdistan regional government, for example. And the evidence was provided in Iraq, and the evidence was provided by us in Washington, D.C. And regardless, the Government Accountability Office report came out, and it completely washed it all away. It said everything was fine, and it said there are no problems, 
and that in fact everything is working the way it should be. That was when it completely hit me that the Assyrian question as foreign determination is one of the most destructive myths that we believe in as a nation. Once I realized that the United States Congress and our partners in Congress were willing to allow, because they have to sign off on the audit and they had the information that we provided, I realized that once they signed off on it, and you know, it's a mess. We still had friends in Congress, but I realized that they could do nothing either. Mm. And when that happened, I wrote to all of our partners and I wrote to all of our stakeholders and I said, ISDP can carry on with somebody else if you still believe, but I now realize that the Assyrian question is foreign determination, meaning Assyrians organizing to appeal, demand, rights and power from somebody else given to us is a ruse. It's a disease and it's been holding us back and it's been destructive. Over the course of all those years, we passed lots, lots of legislation, but it, it did nothing on the ground. In fact, I wish I could say today that all that legislation only did nothing. Tens and tens of millions of dollars was channeled through our oppressors to further oppress us with that money, to economically suffocate us. In fact, uh, one, one member of Congress at that time, I forget who, uh, based on one of my briefings, without any prompting from me, referred to the way money was reaching our people in Iraq as a neo-apartheid system. And I was shocked when she did that because, I mean, obviously I started working for Assyrians in Washington, D.C., having left South Africa, where they had overcome apartheid. So. Oh my gosh. After DC then, did you come back to Canada and begin pursuing your PhD at that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what did you do your PhD on? I'm trying to conclude it now, but my PhD is in political science and it's my specialty is parliamentary transformation in post-conflict societies. It's, it's legislature change, how legislatures develop, change, meet challenges in the societies that they're dealing with. So, but it's, uh, it's also, I, my approach is, it's called theoretical eclecticism. So it, it just means that I use multiple literatures. So I've, I've had to become a specialist in federalism theory, constitutional design theory, deliberative democratic theory, critical liberalism, identity politics. These are all literatures that I have to master in a way in order to work through the, the political science problems that I'm solving. Okay. You'd mentioned that even when you first started getting into politics in your undergrad, that there was an underlying desire to have that be connected to Assyrian matters as well. So when and how did you begin getting involved in the Assyrian community or when did you have a passion for Assyrian matters, really? <laughs> so I, I grew up in an Umtanaya family. And by that, I don't just mean a, uh, an immediate family. I mean the wider network. Mm -hmm. So through both sides of my family, it was an interesting binary dynamic. So in my family, one side was more the political Umtanaya. Mm -hmm. And the other side was the social, cultural, educational side of Umtanayuta. I was actually immersed in the expressions of both. Obviously, because of my personal inclinations, I lean towards the political, you know, the, the, the political expression of my Assyrianism, as opposed to all the other legitimate forms and wonderful forms of expressing your Assyrianism, whether it's in education, in culture, whatever it might be. And so that, that young age and... You know, there's, there's, I will say there are some defining 
experiences. So in terms of involvement in the community, because I, I still remember my mom, I can't tell you how old I was. I just knew it was a big deal, even though I didn't understand it. Mm. My mom taking me to hear Melfono Ninos Ajo's poems live. So he had come to Toronto and he was, he was doing the wonderful work that he gave to the Assyrian cause. And I was a kid and my, my mom wanted us to be there and she wanted, and, and, and so for me, like one of my childhood memories is, you know, coming home from that. And then every once in a while, you know, her putting in a cassette and sitting and explaining mm. the best she could his poetry to us, you know, to me specifically. So, you know, that's my initial engagement with the community is through my family and all manifestations of Assyrianism. But there is a distinct thing in terms of the a distinct moment in the political activism, the Assyrian political activism. And that was uh, in the late 1990s, the Assyrian democratic movement in Canada, the branch, uh, at least in the, in the GTA uh, in Canada, had two people from Iraq arrive and didn't know them. It was Rabi Isaq Isaq and Alama Nikhle Rabi Yonan Hosaya. And, you know, at that time it was Iraq, no-fly zone. What was the Kurdistan region was in its still in its infancy. The issues were so complicated back then. If Obviously, they've become more complicated, but they were complicated back then. And here I was in this finishing up my combined specialist undergraduate degree. And I spoke Assyrian and people knew uh, that I had an interest in this. And they said, would you go to Ottawa? And so I went to Ottawa with these two ADM members that were sent as delegates. And I was blown away. I was blown away by the cause, by the struggle. The things I was hearing, it was the perfect, as I said, we are a post-colonial, anti-neo-imperial, anti-post-colonial you know, post -colonial struggle. And I was seeing all these things expressed that I could understand. I could understand them in terms of where we fit in world history and the dynamics. And I could see these people fighting and, you know, hear them engage. And that was it. At that moment, I realized that, okay, this is what needs to be done. This is, this is where I fit, you know? So where some people fit writing poetry, where some people fit teaching classes, this is where I fit. I fit in, in this part of the fight, in this part of the struggle. And that's ideal, right? What do you currently, as Michael, you asked today, what do you currently have your hands in? <laughs> you know, I don't want to, I don't want to speculate here, but I suspect that no matter what answer I give, there's some people who are, if they don't take to social media, they might roll their eyes. Most of my friends say I'm overstretched and doing too many things, but I will say formally, officially, my, my work is in three areas concluding my dissertation which i'm at the end stages of and that's the highest priority right now and secondly is my work with assyrian self-governance as part of the assyrian self-governance mandate the third item is i'm secretary of on the board of the ninwa plain defense fund which is a entity set up legally in the United States. We're registered with the Department of Justice. We are fully declared with and authorized by in terms of the State Department Treasury to raise funds exclusively, exclusively 
to go to the NPU to support the NPU. So it's my dissertation, it's Assyrian self-governance and the NPU. But that said, I where, where I say my friends and my colleagues say I'm overstretched or if there are partners of mine or colleagues of mine, and it doesn't matter if it's in Europe, in America or wherever, in terms of organized Assyrian activism and they need something or they need my support, I give it. I don't, I, I do the best that I can to give it so whether it's the Assyrian American National Federation in terms of just uh, inter helping or assisting with a project or something or Assyrian Confederation of Europe or whatever it might be but that's more ad hoc and with those initiatives are those is that something voluntary is that something that is funded that you get paid to do I live on grants and awards I've been very fortunate in terms of my dissertation in terms of the research that I do but it's it's a sacrifice. I mean, it's it's a day-to-day, it's a stipend. It gets you through life, but it's not an income. Yeah. So I know that. that's during <laughs> graduate school. I know that. Yeah. Let me answer your question this way. I have not yet started working in any capacity where it's I'm working a salary job designed the way a professional would work. For a salary job and that's part of that is a function of my dissertation it's a challenging dissertation project that i'm working on but yes part of that is also part of the sacrifice of working on assyrian nationalist assyrian untenaya or assyrian activism that makes it impossible to do those things right away yeah so now you're getting close to finishing up your phd what do you hope to do well my expertise and what i was doing overseas already was working with governments on design of their institutions. And I would go back to doing that. I would go back to working with governments on constitutional design issues, specifically legislature or parliamentary design. I'm considered an expert um, in parliamentary design, how parliaments operate, make decisions, deal with governance challenges, and how they innovate and reform to overcome new challenges. Very cool. Really? Yeah, think cool? I think it's very cool. I, uh, I, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating, but honestly, like if anyone suffers from insomnia, I'll send you a paper <laughs> and you know, within two pages, you'll be asleep. That's what I think. But, uh, but I love it. I love it. So we got a question from one of our listeners and it was, what are the three biggest obstacles to achieving Assyrian global governance and three factors to ensure its success? So right now, in terms of where we are with the Assyrian self-governance effort or we call it a mandate and and there's a reason why we use the word mandate but i'll come to that uh, in a moment right now we're at the point where we have secured mandates from all the relevant federations um, assyrian federations in north america europe and also local level organizations affiliated organizations unaffiliated organizations various types of organizations Uh, i'm not going to name any just because the list would be too long And we're bringing together the conveners in the different governance fields or areas. We're coordinating to bring together the conveners. And so so that's where we are right now with the Assyrian self-governance mandate. So it's not out there yet. It hasn't started in that sense. But the mandate has been achieved, meaning the relevant organizational structures out there have hit a critical threshold of saying, we understand that this is important and necessary, and we're mandating these experts, these conveners in various fields to come together and start an iterative process of devising solutions to our self-governance challenges. So 
Let me let me just say simply for the listeners, by the way, to keep it as simple as possible. The Assyrian self-governance effort aims to do one thing, one thing in its most simplest sense. The purpose is to develop our self-help, self-reliant capacity with the understanding that no one is going to save the Assyrian nation except the Assyrian nation. And our guiding principle, we have several guiding principles, but I, you know, we can address them. You know, they're, they're addressed in other presentations, but the, the one that I would want the listeners to, to take away is Ganem Qaganem, Assyrians for Assyrians. And it's because no one else will be for Assyrians except us. We can't expect it, you know. So that's kind of a segue into the obstacles. So... The biggest obstacles to Assyrian self-governance, the, the first one is one that I've lectured on, spoken on, and I'll, I'll speak again to here, is what we call the Assyrian question as foreign determination. The Assyrian question as foreign determination is a century-old myth that has been, unfortunately, the guiding framework for Assyrian nationalist organization at the political level in diaspora, meaning since World War One, since World War One, and if I can, since the Paris Peace Conference, please let me, I hope all listeners will go to Ninwe Press and order Abraham K. Yusuf at, you know, at the Paris Peace Conference. And you will see the start, you will see the start of the Assyrian question as foreign determination. It's not, it's, it's, sorry, let me say, it's one of our century-old legacy of organizing towards the Assyrian question as foreign determination. Of course, there were many others all at that time, from Agha Potros all the way through to, to Abraham K. Yusuf. But at that time, that World War I era, Assyrian nationalist organization geared transition to the Assyrian question as foreign determination. And it's hardwired into our nationalist organizing nervous system. It's hardwired into our Assyrian activism for the Assyrian activists that you care about your nation, you want to do something for your nation, go to Ottawa, go to Washington, go to Geneva, go to the United Nations, go to a foreign government and demand your rights. That myth that has to this day still captures the Assyrian activist imagination and perspective has existed for a century and is responsible. The, the outcome of one century of the Assyrian question as foreign determination is we're weaker, more vulnerable to our enemies, and more dispersed throughout the world through being victims of violence that we weren't prepared to endure. So the main obstacle is that people still believe in the Assyrian question as foreign determination. And no matter how much you talk about it, you can see I've given this lecture over and over again. I Everybody nods and says, yeah, Yes, it's true. And you show them the history of it. I mean, I'm not just dreaming this up. You show them the history of the failure of it. But in the end, let's write a letter to Congress. Let's go to Ottawa. Let's do this. Because it's hardwired into us. So we need to break that. And what the Assyrian Self-Governance Project does is it's, is it's a transition. It's a principled transition away from the Assyrian question as foreign determination to the Assyrian question as self-determination. And once you internalize that idea of the Assyrian question as self-determination, what you're doing is saying, I'm gonna solve my question. No one else is gonna solve my question. No one else wants to solve my question. The Assyrian question has to be solved by Assyrians, as Assyrians working for themselves, through themselves, as Ganem Qaganem. The other challenge is global coordination. And that's just a, the hard reality that we are an indigenous people into Assyria, 
to what is modern day Iraq, Turkey, Western Iran, the whole of uh, Mesopotamia, Syria, and, and it's the modern day nation states there. But we are an indigenous people that live as a diaspora existence. And so that requires global coordination. And the challenge of global coordination is going to require innovation. And that innovation, to me, because of, if, if listeners are, are with us from the beginning, that innovation for me is the most exciting part of the challenge, actually, because that's where the governance design, constitutional design background I have comes in. The Assyrian Empire that innovated ways of organizing their people and building an empire, what the Assyrian Empire that was built was an innovation. Assyrians, all those millennia ago, were enduring challenges, struggles for survival. And that struggle for survival led them to innovate an empire that was so powerful, that was so strong, that its descendants still exist long after its collapse. Today, we face completely different challenges, including this global challenge. And we will, not maybe, not possibly, we will, because we're Assyrians, we will innovate um, solutions to this. And we, we will develop a governance structure for ourselves globally that ensures our survival in perpetuity. Just like our ancestors innovated social, societal, governmental solutions to build an empire, we will innovate solutions that ensure our existence wherever we are in concentration in perpetuity. The last challenge, I think, is local myopia, local parochial thinking. So a, a lot of people, I think, Assyria is central to everyone's dreams, hopes, aspiration. It's what gets our heart pumping. And then it's their local setting. And we need to build, we need to take people and say, you can be part of something bigger. You can be part of something that's almost every, an, an integral part of it, interconnected to it. But because it's never existed before, it's about finding the people with a vision to recognize that that's where we need to get to. So those are the three challenges. And, and I think the things that are gonna ensure it are first, our conveners. So conveners are the people, Assyrians, who are phenomenal experts in their own right. I mean, I'll, I'll give an illustration. One area of global self-governance is education. And education is broken down into three areas. One of the areas is language, and Rabbi Ephraim Yildiz, Professor Ephraim Yildiz, who has designed language curriculum at the University of Salamanca at a level that's made it the EU standard for studying our language. He's the convener for language, and he's going to pull together the best Assyrian language experts that we have, and they will devise an education language curriculum that will become global through this, through mandating organizations. That human ingenuity, that human capital we have is central to our success. And we and, and that's why I'm so confident, it's because we have it. Uh, we Assyrians have the capacity to solve their problems. We are not lacking for the human capital, human ingenuity. The other thing to ensure its success is support. But that, I will just summarize support by saying, getting the support means overcoming the obstacles that I, getting people so simply, getting support for Assyrian self-governance because we develop free Assyrians who understand the shift away from the Assyrian question as foreign determination to the Assyrian question as self-determination. And then the third part to ensuring its success, 
I will, you know, shift away from these kind of details to the bigger principled level. Is the centrality of our Assyrian identity. And here, let me say, Assyrian identity in its absolute unifying, secular, transcendent sense, meaning it moves away from, from a sectarianizing tendency that develops in terms of <clears throat> seeing your Assyrianism through different religious institutions. That system of working through religious institutions was the very system devised by our oppressors, whether it was through the caliphates, through Islamic rule, in terms of Islamic governance, in terms of the millet system. That is absolutely a threat to our existence. And so to ensure the success of Assyrian self-governance, Assyrian is central. And Assyrian in its unifying secular sense that transcends all and therefore encompasses all it's all unifying it's all encompassing and and the people who are working on this buy into this idea and move move through this and so it's essential to ensuring its success because anything else will lead to division and then destruction i love the idea of for us by us how do assyrians without lobbying, without going to D.C., Ottawa, Geneva, how do they then create a future for themselves? A state that we can call our own without, without those avenues? So I can only partially answer this question, and I'm not copping out. It's, it's a great question. I don't know the answer because in different fields, those experts have those answers. And the conveners are going to have um, a founding meeting as conveners and then they'll go and actually convene the experts in their field and begin devising solutions to this. But I'm the convener for governance, for example, and I'm going to convene people to devise those the challenges to innovating a new organizational model for our Shotopuyate, new Shotopuyate, existing federations and structures that allows them to work in an Assyrian self-governance coordinated way. So I can't answer all those questions, but I can answer it in in general terms, in principle terms. So in terms of Ganem Kaganem, what you can do, if you have $10, $100, $1,000, whatever it is that's your level to donate, to work with. And here I'm talking to individuals and I'm talking to organizations, whatever the organization is, Shotopuyate. It's, this number is not a fixed based on some formula. There's no scientific formula to this. I use it to exemplify the principle of Ganem Kaganem. If it's $100, less than $10, less than 10% goes to the Assyrian question as foreign determination, and 90% gets invested within, within us. However you want, but within us, to develop us. So what does that mean in, in practice, but in this general abstract sense? It means, if your organization or if you have $100 to work with. By the way, Assyrian self-governance doesn't say don't engage foreign governments. Mm. It doesn't say that that's bad. It simply says it's a waste of resources if that's your majority investment. No. It also says it's pointless because you are powerless and going to these people without power. What Assyrian self-governance will do is grow our power and make us partners so that while we keep a line open to these foreign governments, 
At some point, because we've empowered ourselves, the discussion takes on a completely different tone. You're no longer begging for your rights. Mm -hmm. You're now negotiating. We have engaged in the Assyrian question as foreign determination with empty hands and empty pockets. Truly, empty hands and empty pockets. And I want you know the people to know, everyone to know, I did this for years of my life. This is this was my organizing model too, and I had to learn the hard lesson. And and I would I hope people can learn from it so they don't have to repeat. The whole goal is that nobody repeats my mistake and our mistakes. It's to learn from history, learn from experience. So the way you can start moving and living towards a Syrian self-governance and Ghana Pagana is that, is to, now that's the abstract answer. Of course, we will be organizing and setting up and then moving towards implementation. And at that point, it will become clear in communities where it's happening, what it means in your Shotapuyate, in your federations, in your local associations. And if they don't exist, where we'll be establishing them, right? But I want people to understand the principle of what it means in guiding your life is we need to start investing in ourselves in every way, in every way. And the majority of that investment needs to always be towards the Assyrian question as self-determination. I can, I can use, if you allow me, one small example. It's a modest example, exactly. But again, it's principled, but it's, it's active. So, Martin Umaran, the president of the Assyrian American National Federation at the last convention, gave a very short presentation. And he, in one of his slides, he listed the revenue from the previous convention and then what he's done with the revenue that they had. I'm not going to, the, the presentation's online. I'm not going to quote any numbers or get into the details, but I want to show the principle. At the end of his presentation, he actually could say 90% of the money spent went to the Assyrian question of self-determination and less than 10% went to the Assyrian question as foreign determination, meaning a trip to DC or a trip to New York and, and pushing an agenda. But the budget of the Assyrian American National Federation, the modest budget right now of the Assyrian American National Federation was overwhelmingly focused to investing within and spending within. That is good. I think listeners would be interested in that too because we're so hardwired in that being the only avenue that we've really entertained for so many years. All right, so let's go to the lighter questions here. <laughs> so you, when you were in South Africa, you met a lovely woman who is now your wife and you are helping to raise a bicultural family of five children. It's amazing. So what have been the ups? What have been the challenges? This might sound weird. The, there's been very little downs and there's some important reasons for that. But, you know, full disclosure here. Yeah, I mean, I, I will be honest. When I told my family I would like to get engaged to this woman in South Africa, they had issues. They struggled. They struggled to process it. They struggled to understand my choice. Of course, some, some members of my family uh, overwhelmingly happy because they thought I would never settle down and get married. Um, but, but you know, and so they were just happy somebody managed to get me there to that, to, to that, to that idea. But that changed very quickly. And I mean, I have no, no hesitation in saying that Lundy is as much a daughter, my wife Lundy is as much a daughter to my parents as their daughters, my sisters are to them. She's as much a cousin and aunt, uh, you know, 
So if there was a down, it was the initial processing that I wasn't going to marry an Assyrian, that I was going to marry the South African. But there's a more important reason why there was very little down. And, and it's, it's actually the key reason. It's because Lundy embraces Assyrians. She embraces Assyrianism in that her husband is an Assyrian activist, was from when we dated in South Africa, through, through our entire life, from the moment she's known me, she's known that I work by day for the South African government and at night I'm preoccupied with the Syrian issues and my Syrian activism. And she's embraced every aspect of it. And that's, that's the, the, you know, if I speak in political science terms, that's the independent variable, that's the causal variable that has meant there are very little downs. Because of course, if she wasn't like that, uh, I would say if she wasn't like that, we wouldn't be married, and and I think that's 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 key. So le, le, on on this on this part of it, let me just say, over the years, I've developed. I mean, I'm a boring political scientist or social scientist, so I try to hypothesize and theorize everything, but I, I'm fairly strong on this conclusion. I've actually come to understand that. I mean, Lundy, my wife, grew up in the first youth and a young adult generation that reaped the benefit of the liberation of black people in South Africa, the non-white, non-European people. And well, obviously the anti-apartheid movement liberated everybody because liberating, liberating, destroying the apartheid racist regime also liberates the oppressors and the racists from their disease of racism for example, right? But Lundy grew up with a conscious awareness that a tremendous amount of sacrifice is needed for liberation, to reach your goals as a people, to reach freedom. And so I've realized that she's able to absorb all the stress in my life as an Assyrian activist because she understands that that's the sacrifice that's necessary. I mean, you'd mentioned solidarity earlier when yeah. with regards to the South African people. That's what comes well, to mind when you say that. Well, I can. I hope this isn't an overshare. I feel. I mean, I'm I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. It was 2006, and I had one small child, and an, actually another, a newborn. No, another baby on the way. So a small baby and another baby on the way. And I was asked to go back to Iraq. And I mean, this is 2000 and, 2006. So it is bad now. And I know people understand ISIS, but for the younger listeners, and I think your audience might be younger, you have no idea what it was like in Iraq with just rampant civil war everywhere violence everywhere and here I was going back to Iraq and I'll tell you my parents who are proud of Tanaya they're Assyrians they you know but they're terrified for their son and they were very upset and at one point my parents turned to my wife and said you know we can't speak to him you tell him you can tell him you have babies and he's gonna go do something stupid and I'll never forget this she turned to them and of course it's a I'm, I don't want to reduce it but it was an emotional conversation but she turned to them and said it's his duty it's 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 his responsibility to do this of course my parents didn't like the answer but i mean i you know that's just an example of what i'm talking about that she understands what it takes 
at all times to, to fight for our survival. And not just for our survival, for us to one day thrive. And so I think that's been an important part of why, you know, then there's, there's another side to that. So, so for the listeners, I guess I would say, you know, what it's been like in the experience that I had, what I would want listeners to know is, I, I think any Assyrian that asks themselves, should I marry an Assyrian or not? I always give this answer. The fact that you're asking yourself means do your utmost to find an Assyrian and marry an Assyrian. In the sense that because you're asking yourself that question, you don't want to one day have the regret if you've made a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if for some reason, fate, whatever it is that works, that leads you to find that person for you, whoever that person is, and you don't have a choice. If For those who are happily married, you know your heart just took you there. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with me. My heart just took me there. But the Umtanaya side, the Assyrian side said, but does my partner, does my wife, my future wife, will she support me? Will he support me? Will And when the answer was clearly yes, then that bicultural relationship was possible yeah. but I, I will just say I have to I have to say this part okay I said I'm my Assyrian is more political my Assyrianism and um, there's some people right now who are gonna laugh because they know the truth of this when I say I'm not a cultural my, you know it's not my forte the cultural side the, the music the arts I mean for example I don't dance I mean I, I don't <laughs> whereas my wife knows a lot of them <laughs> and at Assyrian parties my wife disappears uh, because she's dancing she loves the music she loves the culture she is that is and and she's embraced it so because she's open to it and I said you know there haven't been downs so the the inverse is that is there's so many ups because she's embracing of it she's been received I can really say without without flinching with love from Assyrians and and I hate and I'm using this word deliberately I hate our collective Assyrian self-deprecating ways we're like this and we're closed mind we really put ourselves down we're closed-minded we're we're you know we really like to be harsh on ourselves actually actually if Lundy is an example and there are more I know more whether it was in Washington, D.C., in the Assyrian community in D.C., or here in the GTA, especially Hamilton, you know, if it's a shout-out to Hamilton, but really beyond all that, whether it's been conventions, she's been shown a lot of love. And that speaks volumes for who we are as Assyrians. It, you know, about not just how open-minded we are, but, you know, how welcoming we are as a community. And I think that's important if we're going to survive. Because we can't be closed-minded and we can't be closed off, so you know it's 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 been a lot of love and support. But I'll go back. The independent variable, the causal factor, is that Lundy embraces our Assyrian life. If that's not there, the bicultural dynamic falls apart. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. I think that's important to hear for for listeners for sure. So you'd mentioned that uh, the cultural side of things aren't really your forte. Do you instill Assyrianism in your kids? Uh, let me let me transition answering to this by addressing some of the, the anecdotal ups. The things that are happy, but they explain what I do in terms of my Assyrianism with my kids and instilling it in them. You know, the ups, 
the little things that are just to me small miracles is my kids three of them are in the Assyrian class Assyrian language class run by some amazing Assyrians in Hamilton and you know I, I have to say you know Asha Surishu, Deno Surishu and their parents and then of course all the young students who work there voluntarily I understand as, as teachers you know and then Gabriel having a test a couple of years ago and instinctively you know on every page of the test he needs to write Gabriel and he wrote it in Assyrian <laughs> I don't know what made him do that I have no idea what made him do that and his teacher sent the test back saying you know what is this um, like his his regular school that he goes he, to. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So sorry, sorry. So here he is at his regular school, <laughs> and he has a science test. And at the, if, if parents know this, you know, in elementary school, there's a line name at the top yeah. of every page where they have to sign their name. And yeah. in, instead of writing G A B R I E L, he wrote it in Assyrian. Um, and I don't, I don't, you know. And then to me, the one that that uh, uh, affected me the most because it was the first example is my oldest, Michaela. Um, she's 12 now, but uh, when she was in grade two, in grade two in the curriculum where we are, there's a small project that kids have to, every kid has to do it. A map of the world gets pulled down and every kid is told to pick a country and it's it's your country project. And of course, quite naturally, most kids from different cultures that have nation states or peoples that have nation states are, are going to go there. And here's this seven-year-old in grade two, and she tells her teacher that she wants to do Assyria. And the teacher says, there is no Assyria. And then she argued with the teacher and said, yeah, but I'm Assyrian and I want to do Assyria. And the teacher said, where is it? And she pointed to the Middle East. She pointed to the countries of the Middle East. And she said, that's Assyria, but people stole it from us. And based on her arguing with her teacher, or let me say negotiating with her teacher, her teacher said, go ahead and do it. Like, how could she say no? And and so she pursued this project and, you know, it was, it was amazing. And at, at the Assyrian school uh, here in Hamilton, I don't know exactly what was taught and what documentary was shown. But one day my daughter Marion comes and says, I want to do a picture of the Hanging Gardens, you know, and just to see them. So she's got this canvas and she's traced everything and she's ready to paint. She's painting the Hanging Gardens. And, you know, I... These are the ups. And so those ups as, you know, the, the little things speak to how I try to instill the Assyrianism. And I think the main thing that I do is, and I, and I think it would be fair to disagree with this, right? I mean, I, I can't guarantee it's, it's the recipe or it's the way to work. I'm certainly not. But it's what I do is I try to show them that our struggle is a struggle for survival. And Obviously, I don't try to shock them with the, the nightmarish issues that we deal with. But I do make it clear to them that for a long time now, we have struggled to survive and the struggle is getting harder. But because it's a struggle to survive, survival is through sacrifice. And so I try to show them every type of sacrifice that Assyrian activists are making on every level. So I show them the NPU, the Nineveh Plains Protection Units. I say, Look at these young people in the face of the most terrifying, most powerful forces surrounding them are taking a principled stand. That's a sacrifice. But your teacher in a Syrian class, that high school kid who's taking an entire, the bulk of their Sunday afternoon to sit with you and teach you a Syrian, that's a sacrifice. That's, this is all struggle to survival. Every form of it is a struggle for survival. I make them understand that my own sacrifices, you know, again, I hope this isn't an overshare and, you know, I don't want anyone listening to this to think 
that I'm saying this in any way that I'm making any kind of ultimate sacrifice because I'm not. Uh, of course, I could always do more. But but I do show my kids that, you know, why am I so busy? Why why are there sacrifices in my time with them? Of course, I, I avoid being a negligent dad, but there are sacrifices in time. It's a sacrifice for the our cause for survival. Um, it's a financial sacrifice. You know, why can't we have big family vacations? You know, why can't... Why can't we just go to Disneyland in Florida? Well, we can't because I do these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all part of our sacrifice. You know, why can't we live in a bigger home? You know, why can't every kid have their own bedroom? These are, I mean, parents will understand. These are things your kids ask, right? They're not horrible people for asking these questions. It's very natural. You know what? You can't right now because we're making certain sacrifices. It's, you know, if I can say, Right now, Odessa, you're you you're making sacrifices. You're taking away from some things you could be doing to do things like this. You know, wonderful program you see in podcast series. But I know you do so much more. But of course, I'm more familiar with your husband, Asher Sarishu, mm-hmm. who makes so many sacrifices. And I mean, he has a business. If he just focused on his business, of course, his his business would be better for it. Now, he's got an amazing business. But some of his time gets taken away from that. It's a sacrifice. It's a trade-off. But he's willing to make it. And so I see him at the school on Sundays. Robbie Osher. My kids only know him as Robbie Osher. I let them know that that's a sacrifice that they have to appreciate. And then, you know, we did. We did for the first time manage to take a big family trip to California. Um, And when we got to California, you know, we went to A&B TV. And... Nino's Turnian took them around, showed them A and B TV, and I said, "Look at all this. This is a sacrifice, right? This is this is somebody making their sacrifice." Of course, we know he makes so many other sacrifices, you know. But the point is, I show them that we struggle to survive, and that the only way we're still surviving is because people make sacrifices. I try not to be too negative, so and I don't want the listeners to think of this in only this kind of. You know, I could understand if somebody says, wow, that's so depressing. Uh, it's not. To me, it's beautiful, by the way. I, I hope people realize that that's, that's the beauty of it. It's what keeps us all going, is seeing everyone making sacrifices around us. Um, but I will say, <laughs> this is quirky, or let me say, I hope, I hope people don't think I'm totally nuts for this, but here I am a new dad, and kids are transitioning, you know, toddlers. Their vocabulary is growing, and that's really... When I started thinking to myself, you know, how do I do this? How do I, you know, uh, I mean, when they were infants, they were wearing Christine Faulkner's, you know, onesies. They don't understand <laughs> that their onesie is an, carries Assyrianism. They don't, they can't comprehend that. So here they are at their age where they're comprehending things. I'm asking myself what to do. And so I got desperate. And so there was a period of years where I would read them Disney stories, you know, the short Disney stories, princesses, princes, mm-hmm. fantasy, whatever. And because they couldn't read, I maligned all the stories and converted all of them into Assyrian mm-hmm. Assyrian Tanaya stories. So for several years, they would open every Disney storybook with a line, and they were convinced that because of me that this is how it started. You know, once upon a time in Assyria. There were these princesses and, you know, they knew they knew these things and they, you know, they would sit around me before bedtime because I was desperate. Now, you know, thanks to 
wow, this is going to, I just realized now that this is going to come as like a huge bias on my uh, love and respect for the Sorishu family. But Julia Sorishu Rogers, you know, now we have people who are writing children's books yeah. and, you know, you, you have online applications, you know, or web-based uh, applications where kids are interacting with things. And, and that's wonderful. And my kids do. I try to encourage that as much as possible. But back then I was desperate. So I what I wasn't prepared for is that the minute they started reading, you know, one day Michaela came up, put a Disney book in front of me and said, this doesn't say Assyria. <laughs> but at least I made my point. I, you know. It's like her not discovering that the tooth fairy doesn't exist. She's like, wait a second. She was traumatized. She, you know, um, I would embellish the stories and, you know, oh, it's not in the pictures, but is there, they had ideas about Lamassus as guardians and guardian angels from Assyrian history coming in and intervening to save the prince and princess and everything else. But, you know, it was it was just my desperate measure too. So, I mean, that's just on the lighter side, but yeah. uh, it, it, is, it is a struggle that we all face, right? I mean, we're in diaspora and the power of assimilation is always there. But in this case, both parents, and this isn't about being bicultural. It's just two people. Yes, I'm Assyrian and she's South African, but it, it's, it's both parents telling them that your Assyrian, your Assyrian identity is an important part of defining who you are and making you who you are. And, and it gives you responsibilities, but it also gives you joys. You know, you're part of this community and it's an amazing community. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I really am. Final comment is, you know, setting aside my personal life, I, I hope all of these podcasts and everything coming out on our media stimulates debate. And my biggest wish for people, obviously you could get from this interview lots of wishes that I have in terms of what we work on, our aspirations, but specific to this medium discussion is that I hope people um, use it to prompt healthy, respectful debate. I think, you know, a senior podcast has been one example among our other media out there now that's trying to promote um, a reasonable discussion of ideas. And so I hope people, you know, focus on thinking through their words, attacking ideas, attack arguments. I'm all about debate and, you know, criticism, uh, but not one that attacks the individual, but one that attacks the idea, criticize the idea, but to make it better. And so I thank you for everything you guys are doing. 